Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, December the 11th, 2020, and this is episode 2790 of the Survival Podcast. We're rapidly heading up to episode 2800, but I don't think we're going to clear that fence by the end of the year. Uh, I just want to remind you guys that maybe are new to the show or what have you, I do a winter shutdown. And this is something that is coming not next week, but the following week. Uh, so next week we'll have a regularly scheduled program week. I haven't quite exactly figured out what I'm going to do with the 21st, 22nd, 23rd uh, of the following week. Uh, the, the 24th, I will play the Christmas special. There'll be three other shows that week. I'm thinking about actually doing an expert council show on the 16th because, man, I got a ton of stuff in from the expert council by shaking the piker tree. And so I'm well-stocked going into January with expert council segments like you're going to have today for an expert council show. So I might do that on Wednesday. And then on uh, Monday and Tuesday, I don't know, week, you know, week, uh, full week and then that week of the 21st to the 25th, 25th being Christmas. But I, I will tell you this, regardless of that, I will disappear on the 23rd, and I will not reappear until, I think it's the 4th. I, we're actually going out of town, so it might be the 5th of uh, January. I take that time off. This goes back to when I was in the cabling industry, and I worked specifically for uh, phone system uh, work for, actually at the time, uh, the first one that I, I worked with was a company called MCI, which many of you are too young to even probably remember now, but that's back when you actually picked your long-distance carrier for your landline phone that people actually used. And it was that period in between Christmas and uh, New Year's that we would just shut down and so they'd send everybody home. And we were your traveling contractor type of work. And it just kind of stuck with me as the time that I take to my family. So I will disappear. I do not think, I haven't decided yet, but I do not think I'm going to do rewinds between the 28th and the 1st. It might happen. We shall see. I haven't even gotten started on that. And I've been working really hard heading into the shutdown this year. Usually, and I, I was talking to my wife about this last night, uh, I, I've been dead beat at the end of these days. But I've kind of rededicated myself to, to doing more this year after the workshop. Generally, the workshop comes and... I had a tendency over the years to kind of put it in neutral. I keep things going, but you're kind of going downhill in neutral with clutch in, you know, riding the brake all the way to the shutdown. This year, it's been more of a pedal to the metal type scenario, and uh, I don't know that I have time to put rewinds out. Maybe I could just recycle rewinds. Who knows? But uh, if you're interested in content during that week, let me know, and we'll we'll, we'll figure something out. But just just kind of preparing everybody for that. With that. Here's what we're going to be doing today, Expert Council Show. I've got a great lineup for you, a long lineup today. I figured since we're heading toward the end, let's give you a, a, a bunch of experts to hear from today. We have Sean Mills on surge protection for standby generators, Paul Wheaton with an update on rocket mass heaters, TPs, and more, getting your own roaster for coffee, and an odd question on roasting for Nicole Awesome Sauce, choosing a set of binoculars for long open territory with J.R. Haley, Mike and Sue LaPrice on homeschooling when you have really young kids in babies in the mix. Maybe not quite even 
up to the homeschool age to really start organized school themselves. This is something we've been dealing with ourselves with uh, our granddaughter being like four and our grandson, you know, he's 10. This is a big spread there. I mean, six years isn't much when you're 30, but six years when you're 10 and four, that's a lot. And uh, so we've been trying to keep her leaving him alone when he's doing his work because he's really good about it. And I understand the question well here. And we'll hear what Mike and Sue, who have plenty of experience in this world, have to say about that. The good, the bad, and the very, very ugly around what we call superfoods from Dr. Ken Berry. And finally, organic disposal of paper and cardboard via gardening from Jeff Lawton. Some do's and don'ts with that. And then dealing with fear in a world where everything is designed to make you afraid. That I will take that one, and we'll anchor the show with that and go out for the weekend with a really great song that was sourced off of MeWe from back when music was real music. All of that and more in just a bit. Let's start off with a quote of the day. This is by Reuben Blades. Who is Reuben Blades? Reuben Blades. Reuben Blades is a Panamanian musician. Uh, most of his music is of the salsa variety. I'm not a huge fan of that genre of music, so I don't know his work well. But I did love this quote when I found it today on Brainy Quote. I think we risk becoming the best informed society that has ever died of ignorance. Oh my God, I cannot agree with that more. I think we risk becoming the best informed society that has ever died of ignorance. And it's worse It's worse than just ignorance, willful ignorance. We have really become a society where once people form an attachment to an idea, they use intentional, willful, fortified ignorance to defend the idea. They don't defend the idea with facts and figures. This is how we get to the world of, it's science! It's science, you fool! It's science! That's not an argument. It's not an argument. Watch this. I, I'm a frog! I'm a frog! I'm a frog! Guess what? I'm not a frog. I'm Jack Spirico. Screaming something over and over and over again, talking over people with the same idea, without the ability to back up the idea, with facts, logic, reason, and rhetoric is not science. It's literally the definition of willful ignorance. We have willfully ignorant people educating people to be willfully ignorant in our society. I think we risk becoming the best informed society that has ever died of ignorance. The other side of that, best informed. Don't think this is just about the internet. Ruben's an older dude, man. Okay, He's older than me. This quote comes before the internet ruled all. This is just another way of saying something I used to say all the time about people who used to work for me. I'm like, I have educated idiots that work for me. They come out of these, these, these colleges, you hire them, you give them a job, they can't do anything without direction. They can't move forward on their own, they can't think independently, they can't deal with, with problems, they sure can't deal with criticism. They, they, they literally lack all coping mechanisms with the real world, but yet they have fancy degrees. I had a guy work for me, he had a marketing degree from SMU. It is very expensive to get a marketing degree from SMU. It is considered one of the finest schools in the, in the country to go for a marketing degree. And as much as I had already experienced educated idiots many times in my life, when I found out that this kid graduated with a 4.0 GPA, I was shocked. He couldn't have marketed freaking water to a person dying of thirst in the middle of a desert. 
I think we risk becoming the best informed society that has ever died of ignorance. And again, willful ignorance is the real enemy here. With that, let's start uh, working on real education where we learn about real things from real people that really did them. Let's start off with surge protection for standby generators with Sean Mills. Hey, TSP, and happy holidays. This is Sean Mills with the Expert Council from HackMySolar.com. I've got a quick one for you today. Uh, we've got a question from Mark. It says, uh, Expert Council question, Sean Mills. I recently added a standby generator to my house. They are now offering me a surge protector for $319.34. Data sheet for the surge protector attached. Is it worth the money, and how much protection will it provide? Thanks, Mark. Hey, Mark, this is going to be a pretty simple one. Uh, since I'm assuming your generator is connected to either your main panel or a branch panel that's integrated with your home, you need to get the surge protector. Uh, the reality is that $320 in insurance against the value of all the things that you're running on your standby generator is probably worth it. Additionally, uh, the NEC, uh, which is the National Electrical Code 2020, requires it. So because the 2020 version of the code is new, uh, your mu municipality probably hasn't adopted it yet, but it will eventually, um, which is why the guys didn't put it on as a matter of course, uh, because it's probably not required under whatever it, version of the NEC um, your municipality is currently operating on. But this means that if you ever needed to get any additional work done on the electrical system, uh, not having the surge protection device could cause a problem for you if that work is done after NEC 2020 is adopted. Uh, and it's definitely going to come in, uh, well, I won't say definitely, but it will most likely come into play if you want to sell the house. Um, an inspector that's worth his salt is going to inform a prospective buyer that you've got a standby generator that's missing a surge protector as required by code, whether that be NEC 2020 or a, a later version of it. So I'd say go ahead and spring for it. it you know, parts 320 bucks plus whatever the labor to, to install it. Um, I think this specific surge protector uh, protects against surges up to 50,000 watts. Um, it might even be 50,000 kilowatts. I'm not sure, but, uh, the, the primary reason for getting this isn't necessarily the protection. It's the protection against the code. Uh, so yeah, if I was in your position, I would 100% uh, pull the trigger and get that uh, surge protector put in. All right. Well, hey, like I said, this was a quick one. Hope everyone has uh, a great holiday season and uh, keep sending the questions in. We'll get them answered. All right, next up today, a long-awaited update from Paul Wheaton, who went through some uh, some health issues recently, nothing to do directly with COVID in any way. Um, but he is back and at it again, and he uh, put some stuff together for us on some modifications and, and whatnot to a rocket mass heater system that's incorporated with a TP, keeping people warm when it's below freaking zero in a TP in Montana. Yep, really. Paul, take it away. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. Uh, today I'm here with Jen. We're going to talk about some work that we did on the rocket mass heater in the teepee. Um, and about seven years ago, we put the teepee up with a rocket mass heater with the idea of being able to prove how a rocket mass heater heats in a very different way. 
So there was a couple that stayed in it, and we did have a night where it was 26 degrees below Fahrenheit. Um, so 26 degrees below zero Fahrenheit in the teepee, an uninsulated structure. And uh, they didn't know it was that cold. When they got up in the morning, they took off their night clothes, put on their day clothes, and they said it felt like about 50 degrees. Of course, you can't measure with a thermometer because that's going to measure air temperature. And we're working a lot with radiant heat as well as conductive heat. So those don't count as much. Uh, it was, they didn't realize how cold it was outside until they actually got outside the teepee away from the radiant heat of the rocket mass heater, which, by the way, hadn't had a fire in it for eight or nine hours. The fire had gone out, and it was still very, very warm in the morning at 26 below. Over the years, uh, we have uh, made some improvements to the system, and then uh, this last year, the last six months or so, uh, we had some reports that it wasn't working well. And so we're going to try and share with you some of the things that were done to get it working great. And so, Jen, you have firsthand experience. You were there doing it. What did you find out? Well, we the first thing we did was check for blockages. We did find a wood rat. We got him out of there, but we didn't find any nest or anything that could be explaining it. Um, we widened the gap above the manifold, popped the barrel off, and then inside of there, there's a manifold made of orange fire brick, and there's, like, some cob around it. The gap was very small. We widened that. Didn't really seem to solve the problem. And so then Fred and I started doing some different experiments with different configurations. So, first of all, um, that where the gap was tiny, there's, there's a shelf that the barrel sits on. It's made out of cob. And then there's, um, and it's right next to it. It's a tight, tight, tight space for every rocket mass heater. And uh, so between the barrel and the riser, there's not a lot of real estate there. So it's like we got to be able to get that airflow bigger. So we just kind of shaved and shaved and <laughs> cut and, and, and took away some of the cob, took away some of the orange fire brick to kind of make the hole bigger. But it was still way too small. Correct. Um, so then Fred and I tried... There was an 8-inch vertical exhaust right next to the barrel, which creates a tertiary thermosiphon to help suck the air up and out. Um, And we tried switching that from an 8-inch vertical exhaust to a 6-inch vertical exhaust to see if that might eliminate any laminar flow issues we might be having where the air would just be kind of like hanging out, circulating inside the exhaust pipe instead of exiting the teepee. Um, and that wasn't very successful. Uh, it it might have made things a little worse. It might have made them about the same, but it didn't solve the problem. All right, next. All right, so then we decided to replace the orange fire brick riser, which we found that this orange, quote-unquote, insulative fire brick is not as insulative as it could be. It's better than normal fire brick, but it still kind of sucks. So we decided to replace it with this molded ceramic riser, um, which we have found is the best stuff available, better than DuraBoard and DuraBlanket, um, made by the same company, I believe. Um, and so we didn't have enough of it to replace the full riser, but we did replace most of it. And then at the top, um, we put a section of five-minute riser, which is essentially DuraBlanket inside some metal ducting. You don't want metal ducting on the inside because it'll spall, but steel ducting on the outside is fine. Is fine. 
Um, and so we tried that, and it was an improvement. The, the burn was stronger and cleaner, but it still didn't really meet our standards. Um, so we did a couple experiments, um, like bypassing the mass and just coming out of a clean-out. The burn was really strong then. Yeah, exactly. But it's pointless. I mean, the minute the fire goes out, you're cold again. Right, because if the mass part of the rocket mass heater is what retains the heat and then radiates it to the people who want to live there. Um, so that was a very strong, clean burn, but it was dumb, so we didn't stick with that plan. What we ended up doing was coming out the end of the bench and where the exhaust had previously gone underground into a poor man's stratification chamber um, and then come out right next to the barrel. We just decided to eliminate that whole thing, come out directly from the end of the bench instead of going underground, um, and that seems to be working well. So it's, so basically we put the vertical exhaust back to what it was seven years ago. And about five years ago, we made an improvement where it goes underground in an effort to try to create a bit of a stratification chamber. Right. And, um, and so for now we bypassed that because somebody was coming to stay in the teepee and we needed to get it ready. Right. It was like, we don't have time to do any more. We're under the gun. This person is showing up. Today, um, So we had to finish it up. There's some design improvements we'd like to make in the future that might allow us to put that stratification chamber back and experiment with that. But that's probably another podcast for another day. Yeah, I think that what we'll end up with, if we can get that to work, by, by making the whole core a ceramic, a molded ceramic fiber core, which yeah. we found is the best stuff to use, then um, I, I think we're going to get the, the clean, the strong, clean burn that we want with, with, with no, with, with invisible exhaust. Um, and it will heat the teepee with about half the wood, maybe even a third of the wood of what we're burning right now. Because we burn a lot of wood to heat the teepee because it's uninsulated. It's uninsulated, yeah. yeah. It's just a cloth, mm. like you can see out of it in <laughs> many places. It's there's a teepee. A, there's a four-inch gap yeah. along the ground. Right. And, and then there's a hole in the top. Have you seen the hole? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is literally a teepee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jack, that's our update. Thanks. Next up, a question for Nicole Sauce, two, in fact, from two different folks. One is on getting your own roaster, and then one is the oddest question I've ever heard asked about roasting coffee ever. And uh, my, and I, I was just like, well, I, I don't know, but I think that's a bad idea. Is it? Let's find out. Nicole, take it away. Well, happy December, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Holler Roast Coffee today. I have a coffee set of questions that I've gotten from y'all. First one comes from Brandon, and Brandon says, is it possible to take a light medium roast coffee bean and make it a dark roast at home on the stove? He then goes on to say, can I bourbon cool it? If so, how? Brandon, yes, you can, but that's probably not the question you meant to ask. Should you take beans that are already roasted and roast them more? The answer is no. They will taste like ash. We don't like drinking ash. Ash is something that goes in the wood stove, not in our coffee cup. So don't do it. By the time they've been through the roasting cycle and cooled, if you re-roast them, it's going to take on weird wood ash-like flavors. You're not going to want it. That said, the bourbon cooling process is a totally different thing. Now, if you are roasting at home, you can totally bourbon cool at home too. And the way you do that 
is you roast your beans, and when they're hot, you pour them onto your cooling table or however you're going to cool the beans. What you want to do when you roast coffee is cool them quickly once they've reached the roast you want them at. And a way to speed that up is to squirt a high-proof alcohol on them, which then evaporates because it hits the bean and goes and it evaporates and that causes the sugars in the beans that are natural to crystallize and it kind of mellows out the flavor and adds some sweet tones that are natural to the coffee and that's how you bourbon cool so you can do that in my roastery or you can do that at home we do it with jack's bourbon cooled sumatran and it has really good results and since i just did a roaster upgrade it's it's even more fun to watch because i'm now taking giant containers of bourbon and like waving them over a whole bunch of beans and there's steam that comes up it's a i should do a video i will one of these days anyway i hope that answers your question brandon if you have beans you don't like because they're not dark enough Give them to a friend. Next question comes from Steve in Maine. Do you have any recommendations on a small sampling coffee roaster? One to learn roasting techniques with at home and then eventually incorporate into a roasting business later as a sample roaster. Now, Steve went on to explain his thinking. And basically, he's saying, I kind of want to try this. And then if I like it, I want to start a roastery. You're on the right track, Steve. But you're asking the wrong question. The, the question you should ask yourself is, do I like coffee roasting? And then the second question you should ask yourself is, do I like it enough to make a business out of it so I'm doing it every day? I have spent as many hours as I can this week roasting coffee, and I'm like playing music and boogieing in front of my roaster while I make sure I don't burn them or do it wrong. And I have a great time roasting coffee. Not everybody does. So my first piece of advice is, do you know a coffee roaster nearby that you can go to and shadow for a couple days? Because things happen when you roast that are not fun, like face full of smoke or dang it, I burned the beans or dang it, I burned myself because it's hot. Like there are some of those things or I don't really like pouring this in bags and sealing the bags. Find out if you like that. When you know you like that and then decide what your first step is. Do you want to go straight into launching a roastery and apprentice with somebody for a few months and just get it done? Or... Do you want to learn at home over time? If you want to learn at home over time, I wouldn't say go buy a two to $3,000 home sample roaster, a commercial sample roaster to use at home. I just wouldn't do it. I would get something like the Baymore 2000, which is, it's not an air roaster. I use an air roaster. It's a drum roaster and it's a rotisserie, but it does allow you to control the temperature at the different times in the roast and learn a roasting profile. They don't do dark real well. Like they'll go to dark, but not Italian. So, I mean, you can make it go to Italian, but you don't want to do that with the Baymar. So you'll go to dark fine. Uh, that's a really good one. And I think they're about 600 bucks. So it's not going to break the bank if your budget is two to 3000 and then put the rest of that two to 3000 aside for when you need to get your real roaster or get your roastery set up. Uh, if you're going to go commercial sample roaster, you can always go with the industry standards of Dietrich or Probat. Those are two brands that a lot of roasters like. I don't know anything about those, though, because I don't have a commercial sample roaster. I just roast on my commercial machine. And then if you want to taste air roasted coffee, you literally can go to Goodwill and get a popcorn popper and run beans through that. And that's air roasting, right? Or they make the Gene Cafe, which has a computer you can control it with that's 600 bucks about. And that does a half pound at a time. That's one of the many steps I took along my journey. But I found early on as I was learning how to roast, I did best with a drum roaster and a propane burner on a self-made machine. And I could do about two pounds at a time on that. 
and didn't really miss the interim step of home roaster to commercial. Once I got to a commercial roaster, it was a whole different ball game. And I found that by studying the process of roasting and talking to other roasters and getting their advice, that's the way I've learned best. And so again, I can't urge you enough. If you're going to be thinking about doing a coffee business, go find somebody to apprentice to or go shadow them for a day or two and find out if you can get the skills that way. There's also a book called Modulating the Flavor of Coffee. I'm going to send a link to Jack in the show notes. It's a little book, but it does talk about the whole chemical process in plain English so that you can see, okay, if I up the temperature at this point in the roast, it brings out these kind of flavors. And if I keep it here in the middle, it brings out those kind of flavors. And you can start deciding how you want your coffee roasts to impact your beans. So I hope that helps you as well. Let me know if you get the coffee business started and if you decide you really love it, because it's always fun to talk to more coffee roasters in the network. With that, it is holiday season and holiday coffee season. And Holler Roast has a couple offerings for year. We, you. We do have Jack's Bourbon Cool Sumatra, and I have about 80 pounds of that left and didn't really announce that we released it again, but we've got it. We've also got sample packs that are three six-ounce bags of beans that get sent to you or to whomever you'd like to give a gift to. And then we can gift wrap anything at hollerroast.com now, as well as do coffee of the month packages. So those are all available if you're looking for a really cool Christmas gift for your friends. And my one thing I wanted to mention is that the post office since July has been in a cluster. And that means that while they do say your last day to ship is the 19th of December, I'm finding things taking two to four extra days right now. So if you're looking for getting your gift orders in, do it soon so that we can get it to your loved ones in time for the holiday. I really wanted to thank everybody for all your support this year and make it a great week. Next up, got a question for J.R. Haley on choosing a set of binoculars. And I have a little addition to this one that I'll give you after uh, you hear from J.R. Hey TSP, JR here with the Expert Council, answering your questions on guns, gun gear, and all things firearms related. Today's question comes in from John, and he's looking for a new set of binoculars. He and his family are taking a trip up to the Denali National Park in Alaska next summer. They visited there before and quickly realized that they were missing out by not having any magnified optics to view wildlife from. His budget is around $200. Well, John, that sounds like a great adventure, so let's see if we can get you dialed in on something that's going to help out. The trusted names in the working man's world of optics are names like Nikon, Bushnell, Leupold, and Vortex. If you just type in binoculars on Amazon, out of the (laughs) brand names that it throws your way, eight of them are names I have never (laughs) heard of before and never seen any of my partners use. So I'll stick to these four brands. When it comes to binoculars, you'll see numbers like 8x42 or 10x50. The first number references the magnification, and the second number is the size of the objective lens. For magnification, the higher the number, the more magnification. For the vast landscape that you'll be looking at, I'd suggest a 10 times magnification is probably going to suit that application best. But as with all things, when we go up in features, we really we go up in price. And that's the weird things about the budget that you mentioned in the optics. 
not that you did anything weird with thinking about a budget of 200. It's just that optics don't seem to have that 199 price point. It's kind of a 99 to 149 price point for the lower tier and a 239 to 299 for that second tier. And John, you did mention that your price point can change a bit for quality. So with my recommendations, I'll take you into that second tier. For me, when I finally got a bit more serious about binoculars, I wanted to spend that little extra to get something I knew I'd be happy with each time I put them up to my eyes and not sit there and long for something more. Oh, and real quick before I give some recommendations, that second number of binoculars, 42 or 50, this is the field of view for your binoculars. In other words, how much of the landscape can you see at one time? Just like using a camera to take a photo of a large group of people, say, 15 feet away from you, as a photographer, you might have to take a few steps back to get all the people in the picture. With a larger objective lens, you wouldn't have to take that step back as you would get a wider field of view. Again, the caveat to a larger objective lens is price as well, and also weight. And weight may not be an issue if you're using them from a vehicle or from a campsite. But if you're backpacking around with them, they are definitely going to be a bit bulkier. So take that into consideration. So here's where I'll steer you. For the landscape and the price point that you can move a bit up from on that 200, I'd say go with a 10 by 42. You enjoy, you'll enjoy the little extra magnification when you're looking at the foothills or the side of a mountain. As for the objective lens, a 50 millimeter objective lens does give you a wider field of view and more light gathering. But most likely, you'll be observing most of the things in good daylight and the extra cost for the 50 millimeter objective pushes those numbers probably higher than you'd like to. But if I'm wrong about that, consider a 50 millimeter objective. In the Vortex lineup, you'd be looking at their 10 by 42 Diamondback HD binoculars. And those come in around 229 as of this writing. For Leupold, you're looking at their BX-2 Alpine series, and they come in around 249. And the last one I have for you is from Nikon, and it's their Monarch 5 line. And for their 10 by 42, it comes in around 296. I do have that particular set of binoculars in an 8 by 42. So for me and my application in Oklahoma, the ranges and the landscapes that I scout with binoculars isn't near as vast. So if I'm running 10 power on it, it I zoom in a little too much for what I'm looking for. So I'd like that 8 times magnification, which also helps with my field of view um, in, in our areas around us. So, John, I hope that gives you some good ideas of where to go on binoculars. In your question, you also mentioned spotting scopes, and of the brands that I mentioned, the price points for those really doesn't come into a worthwhile purchase until you get to around the $399 market up, on my opinion. But if you're interested in that price point, the Vortex you'd be looking at would be the same model in the Diamondback HD, 
and it's something like a 16 to 48 variable power with a 65 millimeter objective for that price. Key thing on spotting scopes, though, is you need a good tripod or a good rest. When you start to stretch them out with that higher magnification, any little wiggle of the base is just supremely annoying to focus through and to look look on. So it needs a good solid foundation when you're doing those higher magnifications. Okay, ma'am. Thanks for the question, John. Best of luck on that awesome trick. Back to you, Jack. So JR and I actually talked about this while he was staying at my place um, getting ready for the workshop and through the workshop about this particular question. And, and we, we kind of really both did agree that there is not really a lot of great options for binoculars at $199 in that $199, $200-ish range. There's good ones. Here's the catch. Most of the stuff that's in, like, that's $189, $199, There are competitive products that are 149 that are just as good. It's one of these places where going up that increment in general doesn't really get you up much higher. That said, the, the BX2 Alpines he mentioned from Leupold, those actually sell for 199 Of the, the, the binoculars that he mentioned, probably the if I had to pick between the Vortex Diamondbacks, the Leupold BX2s, and the Nikon Monarch 5s, I would probably take the Nikon Monarch 5s out of those three. They're also the, the most expensive out of the three. The other thing about them is they're also uh, currently unavailable on Amazon. You can get them other places. I have links to all three of those um, for you in the show notes. And then my two additions here to look at. Um, one for the person asking the question, because they are specific to their needs for binoculars. And if you'll step up to like the 269 range, and I know that's a stretch from 200, that's almost you know a third higher. Um, you, you know you're getting close to 300 bucks when you, you start talking about that, right? But it's the Leupold BX2 Acadia 10 by 42s, and I agree with with Jr. for the application. A 10 by 42 setup is a great field of view, a great magnification without getting really really large in your footprint. And if if I had between those four, I would I would step up to the BX2 Acadias. Um, JR probably didn't go all the way up there because he tried to keep you somewhere near your budget, right? I'm just saying that would be something to look at. I don't have links to this line. But for others that need binoculars, there is a good quality option in the 129 to 160 range. And, and there's probably the best in that range are the Leupold uh, Yosemites. And I have a set of those that I love. They're a six-power set. You're not going to find them in like a 10 by 42 especially in that price range. You're just not. They're really more of a, they're not a compact, and they're not a full size. They're like in between. And for those of you that hunt like eastern woods, dark timber, things like that, they're fantastic because they give you a lot of the features of a more full-size binocular with the smaller footprint closer to a compact without getting compact and actually being too small, in my opinion. They're kind of that great middle of the road, and they come in at that sweet spot for a price point if you don't need the higher magnification. And JR also talked about how like optics are one place to really not skimp. Like Buy the best you can afford really applies to optics because... It's the difference, especially with scopes. Binoculars are one thing, but scopes, like that light gathering ability. So you have two, like you can get really great overall scopes 
for 200 bucks, 220 bucks, 240 bucks, right in that range, no problem. And you can get a scope that's like 200, 300 dollars more. And if you shoot them in ideal conditions, they will perform equally well. You won't really notice much. But if you're the kind of person that hunts right to the edge of when you can hunt, and you're making that shot in the lowest light that you can still make a shot, those are the times when those better optics with better light-gathering ability give you the shot when you otherwise would not have it, or not have it responsibly anyway. For some of y'all, it doesn't really matter, because by the time it's that dark, legally you can't shoot no more. So you guys take it or, or leave it at that. Anyway, with that, let's go on to another one. This one for Mike and Sue LaPreeze about dealing with really little kids when you're homeschooling. This is Michael and Sue LaPreeze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSB community. Today's question is a MeWe question, and it comes from a person named Summer. And Summer would like to know, what do you do with little kids while homeschooling your older kids? So we just came back from a several-week vacation where we were on the road, and about 90% of the time we had no Internet or cell service. And our number one solution is providing sticks for the little people to hit trees, weeds, and shrubs, or have them take a log up a hill and roll it down the hill and carry it back up the hill. We did that quite a bit. Over and over again. So step one is maximizing your outside time. When the weather is nice, everyone can learn outside, and you have a lot more play space when you're outside, and everyone gets fresh air. In Houston, that was a bit of a problem because of the rain and humidity, but it would rain for days and days with lightning, and then we would take the day off and just go outside and play in the summertime because you never knew when that rain was going to come back. But we also used a covered patio and our garage to take advantage of that. So whether it's snow, heat, cold, whatever it is where you are, try to maximize your outdoor space when you're homeschooling, and that gives your little kids a lot of energy to use up. Which means, though, that if you're using your garage, it has to be organized. Yes. And so we found that the little kids went to sleep at 7 o'clock on our trip because it was all new sticks and rocks to hit and throw. So step two, contain them. Small people do not understand boundaries. It's not their fault. It's their stage. So providing actual boundaries is very helpful for your own sanity. For babies, having a really comfortable wearing carrier that keeps your hands free is awesome if that kid actually likes being carried. Our third kid loved it. And at 28, she will still ride in the shopping cart. Our next kid, number two, she needed a corral, but we couldn't afford one. It was a little bit stressful. She could climb out of everything, as could her daughter when I had the chance to watch her. And I bought her a corral, and it gave me about three months, which was great. Three months is a long time to get stuff done before she could figure out how to get out of that. And then my son actually built some gates in wherever they live to keep their kids kind of corralled and they're really cute they lock so you can leave them open when the kids are asleep or lock them to keep the kids in a space step three provide school for the younger ones if you have a nice quiet little kid who wants to sit at the table like our number four kid was then they will do school whatever the activity is and um, i realized writing this up that i think number four kid who does not like being outside was so good because he didn't want to be sent outside. So outside's a great either reward or punishment. And um, it helps kids think about who they want to be, what they like to do. And it does help them sit still when they've had time to be outside. So the longer we've been homeschooling, the later age we actually start kids with official school. If they're not good at sitting still and being quiet, we give them lots of play. 
And then I have a lot of hands-on activity. And my two favorite resources are Carrots Are Orange and Montessori Print Shop. They have great reusable, printable things. You can laminate them or just cardstock or paper. Just depends. Really fun. When you're looking up preschool stuff, just type in Montessori. Okay, step four is setting up play spaces. If you're able to have separate spaces in your home for activities to be taking place at the same time, that's very helpful. Quiet play in a bedroom or a separate side of the living kitchen area, if you need to keep an eye on them, is great. We have clearly defined spaces for various toys. The sandbox trucks never come out of, uh, never come into the house. The painting and craft stuff stays in its place with an old plastic table that I don't care that it gets junk on it or it gets messed up. Organizing and maintaining spaces helps keep them clean and helps you to be able to find things later on when you're looking for them. We also have locks on the craft closet so only the responsible big kids get to access it at any time. Each room has a set of building blocks of various kinds that they can play with at any time. Puzzles and games are up in a taller cabinet. If you lose pieces, you end up with garbage, right? So we have one in the game and one puzzle out at a time, so we can manage those pieces. And for our four, five, and six-year-old, they have a box of markers and coloring books that they can use pretty much at any time. Scissors and messy stuff needs to be supervised, so we do it at a different time. Yeah, because you know if you have many kids and you have scissors somebody's hair is getting cut. So they are up and out of the way. And that's happened more than once. Yes. So step five is rewards. And during the foster stage of our adoption, we use lots of treats to reward good behavior. And in our first adoption, our bio kids were all over 14, so they could go to their room. They were very independent. But the second adoption, we got a two, three, and four-year-old boy two years ago while I was schooling an 11 and 12-year-old delayed learners, which was much more difficult. So For the little guys, if they could play quietly for 20 minutes, they would get a treat. Literally one M&M, but it was very exciting. It was the only treat they got all day was to be quiet for just a little bit. And my mom would come and help. So if you have a helper, that's nice too. So with all these steps, you've got to develop your patterns. The key to any solution working is consistency. Your kids need to clearly understand what you expect, both the big kids and the little kids. Years ago, I read Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, and I thought, I'm never going to get this right. I'm constantly changing my structure and my charts and chore charts and school charts. Then years later, I read his son's book about their family and how his dad often changed the schedule, the chores and the activities as the family dynamic changed. I think they had 10 or 11 kids also. And it was such a relief to me. It's like your four-year-old needs a different chart when they're five. Your 12-year-old needs a different chart when they're 15. So that's going to constantly be changing. You've got to constantly change your pattern. And just know, I have to constantly change my pattern. It's okay because each time you add a kid, everything shifts. As the ages shift, everything shifts. So you don't. we don't have time schedules at our house. We have a pattern of flow. You have a checklist. It goes in an order because... One day, writing might take a few minutes. I'm checking your paper. I'm giving an assignment. You're working on your own. Another day, it might take me an hour or more to review, to have a conversation, to explain parts, to watch a video with them. Learning doesn't fit into those 20-minute, 30-minute, 60-minute time frames. So another um, tip is to save a new activity for your little kids until you really, really, really need some time for them to be quiet for an older kid. That might include a brand new movie or a new game or brand new fresh Play-Doh. That's always a great thing here. Yeah, sometimes Sue would have to wait until I got home from uh, from work 
to watch the little ones so that one of us, either she'd watch them or I'd watch the little ones, so that one of us could do experiments or some other type of time-consuming work with the, the bigger kids. Remember, school doesn't have to happen between 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Right. That's super important. You have all day to learn. If you have lots of kids and really need to work with one of the big kids on something, the older kids can watch the younger ones. Just try to have something really specific for them to do. Again, you need boundaries for that. Like big kid number one, you are going to be silent reading while little kid number four is watching a show. And then your family and then teaching everyone how to help. It's really fun when you get your whole family involved in that fun. So finding the part of your life an older kid likes, like a parent responsibility is cooking. But right now we have a baker. And so I've taught her how to bake. And I let her have whatever new recipe she wants to go off on her own and cook meals and stuff. It's fantastic. And I clean. Yeah, another of our kids likes setting timers. <laughs> so we have them set the timers for the water in the garden or for laundry. Um, and to make sure that things get done. So he's very much staying on top of, oh, this is done, time to do the next thing. So find their strengths and teach them how to be independent with those strengths. And remember, when you've designed the life with lots of children, developing a pattern, getting organized, and being consistent, topped off with a great sense of humor, this will lead you to a life you'd love to live. Back to you, Jack. Good stuff, and, and I'll, I'll just kind of add that, like, some of the stuff that has helped us is we have come up with, given that Braylon, is, my grandson, is old enough to self-direct and not have to be completely shadowed over in everything that he does, my wife will maybe once or twice a week come up with an activity that's for the younger child, for, for my granddaughter, and take her. And Braylon stays here. And if he's done with his work and he wants to go outside and play with his, his sports stuff, he does that. If he wants to sit down and veg out on his iPad for a while or watch TV or take a nap with the dog, he does that. And I'm here and I'm working, but he doesn't need me so I can actually work. Additionally, we've been doing some classes with something called OutSchool, which is usually about 10 bucks a class. It's very, very cool. I plan on doing a show on some of this stuff in a, in a bit, but I'm throw some quick ads here. Um, and, and there's been lots of really cool classes, and there's classes that are suited for, like, not two-year-olds, right? But, like, four-year-olds, like, she, Tegan loved a couple classes she did, and it gave her something to do, and she feels like she's in school, too. And since brother's always doing school... And she's not really doing school yet. She wants to do school. So we're trying, even though she's not officially started, she's not doing kindergarten yet. We have her, like you can make anything school, and many homeschoolers do anyway. But we get her work pages to do, we get her things to do, and we give her things to do. Where she feels like, I'm doing school too. And that helps in so many ways. Because one, occupation, that's a lot of what you heard with Mike and Sue. Occupy them. If they're occupied, they're happy. When they're not occupied, that's when all the shit happens, right? So you got that. But the other thing that happens now is you're beginning the training process. Remember, training and teaching are different. The training is in how to, how to participate in learning through an educational layout, like a format, right? Because it's not the curriculum that we're usually thinking of in a school where you sit down in your chair, it's like 45 minutes, and you get five minutes next Like, not that. But there is a certain amount of focus, attention, and time required to learn. 
And getting a kid to, and this is why I give teachers a break on some of this shit, right? Like getting kids to sit down and pay attention is hard enough when there's one of them. Imagine, I think, you know, people like think like the, the, the hard job in high school is like teaching physics to 11th graders, right? Imagine getting 25 kids in a kindergarten all to sit still and listen to you for five minutes. It's, it's, it's a challenge. So the earlier you can start them learning how to, okay, this block of time is set aside for learning or for school, or whatever you want to call it, because it's your house. So that as you get to the point where they they do need to get a little bit more structured, it's that part's done already. I mean, that's what preschool really is. Preschool's not really about learning anything except how to behave. So you have to teach them how to behave in your home, too. And I know some of us that are you know, like full-on anarchists might think, well, that's not very good. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, John John Bush learned this the hard way. John, John Bush, one of my uh, co-hosts at the Unloose the Goose podcast, Said that when he first started his kids, he was like, let him be feral, let him do everything. And like, he realized after a while, like, yeah, this isn't going to work. This is not going to work. Structure is a good thing. Structure is not synonymous with statism, right? So if, you're, if, if that challenges you a little bit, I, I promise you, if you become a parent, you'll learn that, that, that you need structure for kids. Kids want structure from you because they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do, and when you don't know what to do, you actually start to have anxiety and fear. We'll save that for my segment at the end, but those are just some additions I have. Next up, we have Dr. Ken Berry talking about superfoods. I knew this was going to explode his head when it came in. Here we go. Ken, take it away. Hello, Jack Spearco and all the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician, answering a listener's question today. This question comes from John. John says, do you consider superfoods when making food recommendations? And he actually includes a little um, web article about superfood ranking. And I read the article, John. And first of all, let's talk about the uh, nomenclature of a superfood. 97.9% of the time when somebody calls something a superfood, they are full of shit. They are either trying to sell a specific berry like Aussie berries or a certain seed like chia seeds or some kind of shake powder bar or something like that. In reality, it comes down to what, what's your definition of a superfood? And my definition of a superfood is a food that contains no chemicals that try to inflame our body or attack our body in any way. And you may know if you've watched enough of my videos that many plants contain compounds that are designed to slow down herbivores' ingestions of their, their, their seeds, their fruits, their leaves, their plants. These things are like uh, lectins or phytates or oxalates or phytoestrogens. And almost every single plant contains these compounds, which will cause inflammation in your body and in some cases just outright Poisoning. If you eat too many apple seeds or too many uh, almond or uh, peach seeds or nectarine seeds, you will literally die within hours. They are poison. And all seeds have some combination of poison chemicals in them. And some are not immediately deadly, but they lead to chronic inflammation. And so just looking at this chart that, that in, on this website, they list uh, coffee, dark chocolate, sweet potato, Aussie green tea, uh, beets, Broccoli and black beans as as superfoods, and all of this is foolishness. Here, the way I would de define a superfood is a food that contains every fatty acid that my body needs. There are essential fatty acids that you can't get 
you can't make them. You have to eat them or you'll get sick, you suffer, and you die. I would uh, also include in the definition of a superfood a food that contains all of the essential amino acids that my body needs to make protein. These are essential. You can't make them. You have to eat them or you get sick, you suffer, and you die. Thirdly, I would want it to be very rich in a long list of vitamins. And fourthly, I would want it to be very rich in a long list of minerals. Those are the things that we have to ingest. We cannot get them. We can't make them. We have to eat them. And so the the ultimate superfood, in my opinion, is liver. Chicken liver, beef liver, sheep's liver, goat, duck, it doesn't matter. Any liver, if you put them beside any plant food on the planet, the liver is going to blow the plant food out of the water. So let's say two ounces of beef liver versus two ounces of kale or Aussie berry or sweet potatoes or green tea or any of this crap. The, the beef liver is going to, is a literal superfood because it has every amino acid every fatty acid, and virtually every vitamin and every mineral, including vitamin C in that liver. And you're not, and when you look at the actual nutrition contained in kale or spinach or Aussie berry or broccoli, compared to the nutrition in, in beef liver or any liver, you're going to be shocked. You'll be like, well, hell, I thought Aussie berries were some kind of great superfood that had every nutrient I need. They're de- the Aussie berry compared to beef liver is deficient in about 40 different things. And you'll find that over and over again because many people who are either uh, overtly or covertly trying to get you to eat a plant-based diet, they try to get you to believe that these plants are just filled with nutrition and that they're superfoods, and that's bullshit. They're just not. Uh, just an average cut of beef. Just ground beef, say the cheapest ground beef from the supermarket, is going to have more vitamins and minerals and more amino acids and fatty acids than the best non-GMO organic hand-picked broccoli or black beans or sweet potatoes you can find in the world. And so if your definition of a superfood is what mine is, that it's full of everything we need for optimal health, then none of these plants are superfoods. Uh, egg yolks are, are definitely a superfood if they come from pastured chickens. Uh, any kind of liver is a superfood. Many cuts of just meat are superfoods when you compare them to literally the your pick of any vegetable on the planet, any plant on the planet, any berry, uh, any root. Meat just blows plants out of the water when it comes to nutrient density, which is what my definition of a superfood is. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. See you next time. So I, I would add something on the minerals here. And it's at, at first it might sound like I'm going counter to what Ken said, but it's actually going to completely backfeed into it and say, yeah, he's right. And that is when, when we were out here at the workshop, Ken was here, and we were talking about minerals and how, like, you can't create a mineral in your body. You have to ingest it, right? You, minerals are elements, right? You do not have a, a nuclear fusion reactor in your body. You can't make calcium, right? You, you can't make cal- There's no way you can ha- not have calcium and make calcium. You have to get calcium from something. You can extract calcium through digestion in something that's not generally seen as having a lot of calcium, but there's some in there. But you can't take two two minerals and combine them to make a mineral you don't have. You have to have minerals. So when he said this, I talked to him later after his presentation and said, hey, you know, there's something you made me think of here, and it's something I've always said, but I never quite put it this way, and I never reached back to where it came from and put the two together. 
And it, it had to do with my, my old business partner, Neil Franklin. And one day he was saying, blah, 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 uh, vitamins, vitamins. You need your vitamins, right? And I kind of teased him a little bit about the way British say vitamins instead of vitamins. He goes, right. And you say minerals, meaning we say minerals. We should probably say vitamins and minerals or vitamins and minerals. Okay, fair enough. But I, I started thinking about that right when he said that and said, maybe we should call them minor roles, minor roles. Minor. How, what does minor make you think? A little guy with a light on his head and a pick, right? Going down in the ground and mining stuff. Where do we get salt from? The answer is salt mines. Yeah, we get some from the ocean. We do have sea salt. But in general, most of our salt comes from salt mines. Mines. We mine salt. And where this goes back to with the minerals we do get from our plants And when I said to Ken, I, when I said this to Kenny, he's like, if you grow them the way you do, you do, you get that. So he's also, you know, just because you got organic kale doesn't mean you got organic kale like Jack Spierko or Jeff Lawton or Ben Falk would grow. But plants mine minerals, or is it better to say minerals from the ground in a way that you cannot do. They actually go down and through the exudate process in their root systems and through exchanges with soil microorganisms, a plant grows and takes a little bit of boron out of the ground that you can't get by eating dirt. And then you eat the plant and you get the boron. Now, but here's what Ken was talking about. Human beings are not meant to live on plants. We aren't. And if we try to live on plants alone, we get sick. We either get too many of the anti-nutrients that Ken's talking about. That's a generic term for things that, that do what Ken was talking about. They like slow us down or impede us if we eat too much of a plant because the plant wants to propagate and it can't propagate if we ate it. Okay, so th that's 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 one side of that equation. But I don't believe that means we're not supposed to eat plants at all. I just means that that's, we're not supposed to get all of our nutrition from plants. It doesn't make sense for us. We're not biochemically made that way. So we can get, we can actually eat quite a bit of plant matter before we jack ourselves up until we go into high carbohydrates. Now, when we go to high carbohydrate plants, that's the only way we can get enough calories from the plant kingdom to not die of starvation. You see, it's like a catch 22. So then you have to ask yourself, what things on this planet were put here specifically to be heavy omnivores eating lots of vegetation, right? Or to be straight-up herbivores. And, of course, ruminants, that's all they do is eat green vegetation that minerals go into. Additionally, when we look at things that are omnivorous like pigs and chickens, they eat plenty of that, and they're more suited to that. A, a chicken is designed to eat Grains and seeds. That's why they have a great big crop and a little bitty liver. What do you have? You have no crop and a great big liver. There's a reason. There's a reason. You're designed to eat meat. Now, what happens when one of these animals goes out that's designed to live on this material that you're not designed to live on, and they eat lots of it, and they get lots of the minerals out of it, One of the places it really concentrates is the organ meats, and, pro and probably the place where it's the highest is the liver. And the reason that is is because of something that the liver is unique to all organs with. 
If you take a person who's in great health with a good liver and open them up and cut their liver in half and give it to a person that has need of a new liver, both of them grow their liver back. It's the only organ that does that. If you think I just made that up, it's the thing. You can look it up. It's called a living, don living donor transplant for livers. Look it up if you doubt me here. Any organ capable of doing that has to have all the things necessary to make a being. Not just a human, but a cow or a pig or a sheep. Because you can do this to a cow, a pig, or a sheep as well. They can also regrow their liver. So they concentrate minerals or minerals in the liver. Got it? That's why there's so much of it there. Or that's part of why anyway. Now, I know what you're thinking. Same thing I'm thinking. Liver is nasty. I don't care for liver. I don't. I, no. But you know what I do? I get really great grass-fed beef liver. And I get my package of, of 8515 grass-fed ground beef from Butcher Box. And that's 16 ounces. And I cut it with 20% liver, so it's about 3 ounces of liver. So I take the liver, and I cut my liver into chunks, and I put them in bags. And each bag of liver chunks has 3 ounces of liver in it, and it's cut up into chunks. And I throw them in the freezer, and it's about 3 big frozen chunks, about an ounce each. A little more, a little less, it's fine. But they're cut to a size where they go straight into the meat grinder. And so then when I'm going to use my ground beef... I just pull the grinder out and throw three ounces of liver through it. And I mix that into my ground beef. And it makes it taste wonderful. And so when we eat ground beef, many times without my wife even knowing, we end up eating liver along with it. And I also put it into other things like that, any kind of sausage or anything like that. And that gets us two or three meals of a couple ounces of liver a week. And that is plenty, plenty of these, uh, the superfood that liver is. And then I'll add to that, and I haven't tried this yet. I believe this would work with other organ meats, like kidney and stuff like that. I just, I, it, it's not my thing, man. I, I need to be a little more open to it, I'm sure. Now, before my segment today, let's go ahead and hear from Jeff Lawton. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And it's a steamy start to summer here as, we, as rainy season hopefully starts to kick in in the subtropics i have a question here about um, paper products um, that someone's suggesting can they bury them in a hole in the garden two to three feet deep um, and let them decompose and then plant a tree or vegetables over the top later on um, well you can but because paper's made out of wood um, so it's high carbon uh, like wood um, it has to it needs to have nitrogen to to decompose so nitrogen has to come from somewhere and it will come from the soil itself there'll be a nitrogen drawdown while that paper decomposes that takes some time now we do line our planting holes in the desert with cardboard um, before we put in compost and potting mix or soil and compost and that then our trees but that's actually a water retention method where we have extreme extremely dry conditions Generally, um, you've got to be a little bit careful if you're actually burying organic matter 
even things like hugel cultures um, underground in the warmer climates. In the colder climate, if you bury in autumn and it rots more over winter when you're not growing much, that can work quite well with burying wood and burying paper and all those high-carbon products. So if you bury at the end of summer, it goes through a whole winter of uh, wet rot and decomposition during the non-growing period. The springtime, it should be just about recovered from its nitrogen drawdown. Otherwise, and, and not even in those climates, one of the best uses for paper is to actually mulch, sheet mulch the soil even if you've got lots and lots of bits or shredded paper, make a really thick layer. So um, if you're planting a tree, plant a tree into the soil, then cover the surface of the soil out from the trunk but uh, uh, surrounding the drip line, lined up with the drip line of the tree um, in in um, compost, and then put your paper nice and nice and thick, really thick. It can be really thick, um, surprisingly thick, thick as a thick magazine, really, overlapped. And get it really wet, soak it, soak it so it's sopping wet before you put it down. Then put a thick layer of mulch on top. And um, that's like layering a forest in a crude form. You've got uh, soaking mulch that sits on the top like the fresh leaf litter that falls from a forest. Then you've got a sheet sheet of cardboard or paper that's sopping wet but cuts out all the light so weeds can't get through and forms a weed barrier for at least uh, nine months to a year. And then underneath, you've got the decomposed sort of forest layer, which is like your forest duff or it's literally your compost um, version. And so you've got those layers, compost, layer, uh, a thick layer of paper products or cardboard paper and all those sort of high-carbon sheet mixes. And then on top, it can be old clothes even, old carpets, old seagrass, any of those, seagrass mats or any of those things. Um, and then you mulch on the top, so do it in layers, and you get really successful trees planted. You can even garden like that and do a sheep mulch garden. Only a small area works with a garden, because you, you, otherwise it's just too much product. But that's a good way to do it. Cold climates, it'll rot over winter and draw your nitrogen over most of that period. Um, but otherwise, I'd sheep mulch it and um, put it, put compost down, then you then you sheep mulch. On all your paper products or any type of organic high carbon products that are in a sheet form and then your thick mulch over the top, water like crazy it'll require one tenth the amount of water that bare soil does it'll keep it warmer in winter cooler in summer and increase the organic matter um, content in the soil because microorganisms will move in and, and be in, in luxury in that situation there you go so my issue with not burying it is that it's a lot of extra work for not a lot of gain. I've never had a problem with burying any organic matter in any climate ever, even if it's mostly carbon. And I, I will simply say that nitrogen's cheap and that if you had this clump of cardboard that for whatever reason you kind of wanted to bury where you're planting a bush or a tree and you threw a half a cup of freaking blood meal on it, it's all the nitrogen that thing will ever need forever. And, and when, when nitrogen goes into that, that binding process with the carbon, it's not a nitrogen sink. It's not gone. It, like he said, it's an uptake, so it uptakes, and then it releases it over time. So it actually becomes kind of a time capsule for nitrogen. So you can mitigate that concern. And the same with hugel culture. People are like, well, I'm going to do hugel culture. I'm worried about the wood taking up the nitrogen. You know what? Get a bag of freaking blood meal, throw blood meal on top of the wood, and then bury the wood. 
if you want to do hula culture. Don't let that hold you from hula culture. Just know why you're doing hula culture because it ain't right for everybody in all places. It really isn't. All right. With that, let's get into to my question. I found this one pretty interesting, and I sort of spoke on it this week already uh, without actually having read the question. So this one will be a short one to finish things up today. But this is an issue I'm sure many of y'all are dealing with. So this gentleman wrote me a really long email. If I read it, I'd be 10 minutes into just reading it damn near. Um, but the gist is that he realized that he's afraid of so many things. And he finally sat down and felt like, you know what, basically I'm a coward. And he told his wife this. His wife said, you're not a coward. You, you do have anxiety and fear at times, but I've seen you be very courageous when you need to be. And he's conflicted here. But his real question for me is, how does Jack Spirko deal with fear? And... I, I think that, like, first of all, you need to understand there is no one in the world that is fearless except a fool. Only fears are only fools are fearless, because we are mortal beings, and it is natural for us to preserve ourselves. While survivalism doesn't come from a place of fear, it acknowledges fear. Without food, we rot away and die a very horrible death called starvation. And I have. No direct fear of that, but there's a primal understanding of it that has a basal fear that is an impetus, one of many impetuses for me to take an assurance program of making sure I store food so that never happens to me. Likewise, we have very, very good fears. And I don't mean the fear itself is good in that it's a good thing that whatever's happening and causing it is there. I mean it's good that we experience the emotion. If you're standing in a road and a car completely out of control, comes flying at you. It is natural to be afraid and get the hell out of the way so you don't get splatted into uh, to a little mark on the ground. That's a good fear, right? If we go to a beach and we're going to swim, but then we look out there and there are, looks like shark fins, like some kind of horror movie going around, I mean, I'm not going to be afraid to swim over sharks, but if that's going on, something's up. Sharks are not behaving normally. Uh, you're if Something kicking around and there's probably going to get bit. I'm going, not going in there. It was a logical, rational decision not to, but there's definitely somebody who tried to make me go in there, I'd be afraid. But see, in those situations, we're making an assessment and a determination. We're not eliminating fear. We're channeling it, and we're harnessing it, and we're mitigating it. So how do I deal with fear? I mitigate it. I mitigate it through an understanding. I think one of the... One of the things, though, that is very difficult to ever convince somebody that this is a good thing or to convince them that it can be done or to convince them that you've even done it is to go on enough of a spiritual journey or a logical journey, if spiritual won't do it for you, to where you lose your fear of death. Now, when I say that, I have to be clear what I mean. I don't mean that if somebody walked in pointed a gun at you and you believed they were going to pull the trigger and said, you're about to die, you would not experience fear at that moment. That is not what I mean. What I mean is general fear of death. In the words of Julius Caesar, right, If it, or more accurately, probably William Shakespeare, who wrote it through the lips of Julius Caesar, who may have never actually said it, death is a fitting end will come when it will come. We are mortal beings, and whether we realize it or not, many of the things we fear are rooted in our fear of death. I don't want to die. You might as you got to get past that because you're going to. I'm going to. Everybody I've ever loved or ever will love will die. And the only way I won't feel the pain of their death is if I go first. Fundamental reality. And it is a full acceptance of that, crazy as it sounds, where you lose your fear of it. 
since this is eventually going to happen, and since there is no way to prevent it, could forestall it, and maybe certain decisions we make about our diet, nutrition, health, exercise, can make the end less uncomfortable and further away. The end will come when it will come. And again, in the words of Shakespeare. So we harness that. Then everything else is a fear of what I will have to go through before I die. Because when I'm dead, problems are over. Right? No matter what you believe, you either have an afterlife or you don't, but your problems on earth are gone. You're done. You don't have to worry. Like, if you could die, owe on the IRS $20 million and they don't get the money. Hopefully you didn't set it up to where your family's going to suffer because of it, but they don't get it. You could die with any kind of problem and that problem is over. So the only thing left to be afraid of are things prior to death. These all exist to some degree within our levels of control. I can be afraid of the Great Reset. Or I can say, hmm, what are all the great, what are all the opportunities within the Great Reset to inform, educate, entertain, and to make trouble for the people who want to reset things that way? Those are my choices. Those are the, basically the two things that I can do. How can I insulate myself and help others do the same thing and cause trouble for them so they don't get what they want to a degree? Or I can let it roll over me, or I can sit around being afraid of it, or I can ignore it in blissful ignorance, in which case sooner or later it will catch up to me. One of the things about problems, and a lot of people that, that, that have tremendous anxiety, you have open-ended problems you have not addressed. That's, a, that's another thing you have to do if you want to live a life not based on fear. What are your open-ended problems? What, what needs to be done? Most of the time we know exactly what needs to be done. Not to solve them, but to, to make where we've done what we can. You know, if, if, if you have an issue and what you need to do is tell somebody, then you need to go do that. If you have something that needs to be completed and you haven't completed it, you need to go complete it. If you, and there's a lot of people that that's, that's one of their big reasons they have fears. They have all these things in their life that are open-ended problems that they're hoping will just go away. You know, whether it's reports that are due at work or something far more important than that, it has to be handled. And you have to come from an informed position. Whatever it is that you fear, you learn as much about it as you can. You do the things you can do. You accept the things that you can't do. And you go on living your life like a human being. If you're looking for a magic pill or a magic answer or something more amazing than that, I don't have one. And again, this does not mean that I have no fears. It means that I have no fears that I do not have some level of control over. And when I identify a fear, I examine that fear. This is the first when, when I identify I'm afraid that this thing will occur or happen to me or happen to someone I love, I'm like, okay, whoa, stop. Time out. Let's look at this. What is the likelihood of this thing happening? And if it's a you know one in a million shot that it's gonna happen, I pretty much just take that and just pfft. All right. you know. Whatever, I could get hit by a gravel. That's what you, you got to get some fatalism. That's why you hear me say you can get hit by a gravel truck tomorrow. You can. You just, um, yo, honey, I'm gonna run down to the convenience store, pick up a six pack of beer since we're out of beer, and, and come home and watch the football game with the kid, and have a beer. Son's coming over, and smack. Okay, we're gonna not go get a six pack of beer because that could happen. So that, that fears that are in that level, that's what you do with those. You just shit can them. 
And then things that have any legitimate probability that are sufficient enough for you to actually worry about, break them down. What makes this thing a threat? What have I done to increase the likelihood of this threat? What can I do to mitigate the likelihood of this threat? What's already cast? What die has already been cast and there's nothing I can do about it? And then you accept the situation the way it is and you do what you can to change it and you go on with your life. And I know that's easier said than done because as someone who does it, I know it's not always easy. But it's always what you do. Because when I look at worrying about something, there is either something I can do about it and then I do that Oh, there's nothing I can do about it, so there's no sense in worrying about it. And that's that's most of it. And then the last piece of this, and I've talked about this at length over the years, the vast majority of what people worry about is not only things that you can't do anything about, but they're very unlikely to actually cause you a problem anyway. I mean, I, I have some good friends, people I really respect. Some people I talk to today that, I mean, really think the world is over if Joe Biden becomes president. Okay. Wasn't this man the vice president for eight years? Wasn't Barack Obama president for eight years? Did your life really change that much? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't like these people. I wish they weren't here. If I could push a button and Joe Biden would evaporate into outer space along with Kamala Harris and they just both disappear, I'd push that button. I push a button for a lot of those people like that. They just beam them up, but they get beamed out in outer space, you know? Ultimate death penalty for Star Trek, right? Beam them into space. Totally would. Not defending them. Just saying, this, 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 this incredible, you know, dystopian world where the whole country will end as we know it because Joe Biden was president. You know when I heard that the last time? If Barack Obama comes president, the country's over. It's just, it, and I remember the day after he got elected, I did a podcast, and I said, the world will not end from this. And I got a lot of wailing and gnashing and teeth. I know that's probably not what this guy's afraid of, but it's a perfect example of a fear that's irrational. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow any more than I do. But what you do know is what you can act on, and you should act on those things. When you are applying action to places where your control matters... You stop sending your energy to a place where it doesn't. This is why I say not to pay attention to a lot of this shit. It's not that it doesn't matter at all. It's that you can't affect it. Where attention goes, energy flows. So if your attention is on things that you cannot control, all your energy is expended on things that you cannot control. Therefore, you're working really, really hard, even if it's only mentally, not physically. But you mentally, you're working very, very hard in a type of survival mode where you're not getting anywhere and it's not getting any better. And you know what we call that? Stress. And stress can kill you. And stress makes you afraid. And stress makes you act irrational. But it's because the very action that you're taking is to expend all this energy on things that you cannot change. When you're expending energy on what you can't change, of course you're afraid. Of course you have anxiety. Of course you don't behave rationally. Of course you don't get things done that really matter. And of course your life is a wreck. So you have to ask yourself, whenever you're worried about anything, do I, do I have any control over this? If so, what? Is it worth doing that for this risk? Yes or no? Binary, up or down? And it can also be dimmer switch. Well, of all the things, I can do these five things. Three of them are pretty easy to do. There's no reason not to. Let's do those. Of the other two, one's really expensive and doesn't really help that much. And the other one's 
Kind of inexpensive, a little hard to do, but once it's done, it's done. So I'm going to do the three that are no reason not to, the one that, that's kind of easy, sort of, that, that's going to have a big bang for the buck, and I'm just going to not put in a bomb shelter. Next. And if you'll take that approach to your life, you'll stop being afraid of things. In general. Again, I'm not saying I'm a fearless man. Only fools are fearless. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I want to remind you guys, one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do here is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day, the Nesco NPC-9 Smart Pressure Canner and Cooker. It's also known as the Carry Smart Canner. Uh, and about five other names that it's had over the years. The Shard uh, Smart Canner. This is an example of a place where confusion has been created because one company merged with another company that was bought out by a third company. It's all the same product. It never changed. They changed the name on it. It's the one I've been recommending for three or four years now. And it's electric. And yes, you can can with an electric can opener because it does not matter how your pressure and steam and heat are generated, only that they are. And this one is computerized. It has nine self-checks that it does when you set the canning process in motion. If any of them are not met, it will fail to start the canning cycle. And therefore, it won't happen. And therefore, you won't think that you've canned something that you haven't. And it also is a great pressure cooker. And it can brown things and make stews and make some of the best tenderized baby back ribs you've ever had if you want to do it fast. It makes excellent bone broth. It is really, really awesome. It's on sale for 10 bucks off. It's not a lot, but $10 bucks is 10 bucks. And uh, if you don't have one of these wet yet, you may want to get one. Uh, again, it's not a product that's for everybody. If there's anything I don't like about this product, it's big. It's pretty big, man. But it will can four quart jars at a time. And for me and for how easy it is, that's, that's fine. Because um, I don't sit down and can all day long. I'm not my grandmother. But sometimes we'll have like some stuff that we're going to can that comes out of the garden, and I can make four quarts, and when it's done, I can open it up and have another four quarts ready to go. That's eight quarts in a day. I'm done. And I don't. the beauty is you push a button and walk away. Uh, I did a show one time called uh, Electric Canning for the Busy Family. I'll, uh, I'll put that in the show notes again today, too, that talked all about how we use this thing. But if you've been wanting one, it's a good time of year to get yourself a Christmas present, or if you really like somebody, to get them one. And compared to something like the Instapot, this is so much better. It cooks more, and it does more, and it don't cost that much more. Check it out again. The Nesco NPC. NPC? Wait a minute. <laughs> NPC? Some of y'all know what that is. Nine. Smart pressure canner and cooker. Again, it's the same as the Shard Carry variety. Also, do think about becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade. If you want to become a member of the MSB, just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members. I've gotten some emails recently about some stuff that needs to be cleaned up with some of the companies that are discount providers on both the back end and the front end. And I'll be getting to that over our winter shutdown and doing some maintenance on that and bringing you some new discount providers as well. But what's there? We'll already more than pay for your membership. comes out to about 18 cents an episode. Again, you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on members. And when a product pays for itself, it's worth having. If you love money or like money or just don't hate money, you should be an MSB member because if you're buying the kind of stuff we're talking about, you can save enough money that you can make a profit on it. And anything that makes you a profit is a good thing, especially if it supports the show. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. I did not care for John Adams' pick for song of the day today. Just, you know, sometimes certain music doesn't vibe with you. And uh, so I decided, I'm tired. I am, guys. I'm beat. 
I went on MeWe and said, hey, throw me some song suggestions. A bunch of great stuff came up. But this was one when I heard it. I was like, man, yeah. Feel-good song for a Friday. And a feel-good song because it's from a time when America was better in so many ways than it is today. And worse in ways either uh, as well. It's from the 60s. This is called Just My Imagination. Uh, of course, by The Temptations. And... I don't know. I think about this song, and actually it was from the 70s, I think. It was actually like 71 or something like that. 1970, 71 is when this, this came out. Um, but what I always think of when I hear it is a movie that came out in the 90s. Dickie Roberts' Child Star with David Spade in it. It was one of the, It's a great movie to watch with your kids. It really is. It's mostly clean. It's fine for any kid's 10 or so. Um, really funny But there's this scene in it where the little boy that he's kind of hanging out with wants to talk to this girl next door, and he has the, the kid's afraid to, so he has this him and this kid do this kind of like dance thing to this music on stilts, so that she can see out of her window, and it's really just very cool. It's 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 just a, it's kind of a sweet tender moment in the middle of a, a story that's mostly slapstick. And it's it's kind of cool, and it it's just, and the reason I know why they picked the song for it. It just it just feels good, and you know I said that there there were some things about this country that maybe weren't as good in 1971 as they are today. You know, we look at things like equal rights and all. We were not as a good a place in the early 70s as we are today, but the, there's a difference. I think when we look at what we consider activism in that space today, we're going downhill and backwards. At that point, we had some problems, but we were actually progressing forward. And I'd love to see this nation someday do an actual reset, a mental reset, where we start thinking about how to do better by each other. And this is the kind of music that just makes you feel that way. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.